Father, I thank you for each of the folks here this morning. We pray that you would be meeting them where they are and helping them draw near to you, that you may draw near to them. Lord, I know some folks are tired, some are worn out, some are uh, overwhelmed at the thought of school starting real soon, all the things that need to get done in order to get ready for that. Some are battling against sickness and disease and other things. Some are just just having a hard time. And I pray that you'd encourage each person here, that you would build them up and strengthen them. Lord, for those who are doing great and loving life right now, may they, uh, may they rejoice in that blessing that you've given them. May that joy continue in them even when things get hard later, knowing that you are God through all of it. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a thankful people, help us to be a rejoicing people, and help us to be a worshiping people. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we, uh, as a family, we had a good trip to Kentucky. We stayed in a cabin owned by our friends Tom and Pam Looker, who many of you know, and they kept Owen, so it was a, a double blessing from the, the Looker family for us. We did some hiking and some swimming, some waterfalling, and some off-roading. We found some really neat places. Uh, first picture here is a swimming hole below Flatlick Falls. So most waterfalls that you go to, okay, let's go to the next picture. Most waterfalls you go to, it's just hard rocks at the bottom. This has a nice deep swimming hole. The water was cool and clear and clean. It was great. Uh, there are a couple of local boys there, and uh, they were showing off by jumping off the rocks into the waterfall. And I asked them, you know, how safe is this, really? I mean, how, how deep is it below the falls? Oh, it's a good 30 feet deep. Yeah, nothing to worry about. Well, after the guy did his jump in and I was swimming around out there, I went down as far as I could in a few different places. I, at most, it's maybe nine feet deep there. So nine feet, 30 feet, you know, when you're 14 or 15, what's, what's the difference, right? But they didn't break any legs. They did okay. It was a beautiful place to be. Some of the places that we went were just naturally beautiful, like this next picture. This is natural arch, uh, not natural bridge. Okay, let's go to the next picture. Not natural bridge, natural arch. So this is down by Somerset, Kentucky. There's four beauties in that picture. Yeah, it's good to be there with them. And then some of the places were not natural, but they were still pretty awe-inspiring. This next one is uh, an old abandoned limestone cave. Caleb, let's go to the next picture. And uh, you can just walk in from off the street and wander around. 80-foot high ceilings. Just uh, great. Four beauties in that picture, too. So we had a good time. We got to see a lot of neat things, but there were some disappointing things, too. Um, I plan ahead. I build lots of maps and get lots of information in order to figure out the the neat things that we want to go try to experience and, and see. And sometimes those things don't pan out. So Kentucky has a lot of waterfalls. At the end of August, Kentucky has a lot of dry waterfalls. And so you, you can get there, and it's just a bunch of rocks with a little bit of trickle coming off of them. It's not, not so impressive. Or sometimes we drive and drive and hike and search, and the thing that we're looking for, it's just we never find it. We look and look, and it's just not there. We don't find it. Some of us experience that in regular life, too, especially maybe at home. You know, you could be standing there looking for something, and it's right in front of you, but you can't see it until your spouse or another helpful person walks up and says, here it is, right in front of you. As I was driving this week, Jen was cracking up because she was reading a, a funny Facebook thread about this particular 
phenomenon. It started out with a lady posting on Twitter where she said, I accidentally used my husband's body wash, and now I don't move out of the way when someone's walking towards me. Meaning, she's acting like her husband, and he's either clueless, doesn't realize he's like in the way at the grocery store aisle, or he's, you know, man, I will not move out of somebody's way. But she's acting like her husband. So a lot of people thought that was funny, and they just started adding to it, always with the same thing. I accidentally used my husband's body wash, and now I can't stop backing into parking spaces. We got any folks in the room that always back into a parking space? I know some folks that do that all the time. There's a couple pastors in the county that no matter where they are, church, restaurant, whatever it is, they're always backing into the space. And I think it's so they can make a quick getaway in case they see a church member that they don't want to talk to. They can get out really fast. I use my husband's body wash. Now I argue with the GPS while we're driving. Now I can't find anything that's right in front of me. And my favorite, which is, uh, take off that one. Now I can't find anything in the kitchen, but I can see a deer in the woods from a half mile away while driving. Some of you got, yeah, some fingers being pointed at that one. Now, as funny as that is, our passage today is going to talk to us about a serious admonition to look carefully. It's not talking about finding your keys or your can opener. Let's read this whole passage, and then we'll come back and we'll break it into chunks and understand it. This is Ephesians 5, 15, and I'm going to read through 21, even though 21 will belong with next week. It's uh, grouped together with this. Ephesians 5, 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's dig into this. We are in the second half of the book of Ephesians. It's the practical part. Paul's giving us the instructions on how to live the Christian life in light of the fact that we are reconciled to God and reconciled to each other through the death of Jesus on the cross. Russell did a great job last week with the first 14 verses of this chapter. We continue on now with these practical instructions. And this section is going to follow a simple pattern. It's going to contrast a negative with a positive. Do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Do this instead. It's like the put off, put on that we looked at earlier in the book. So the first verse, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So look carefully. Pay attention. Don't get distracted. Don't be lazy or careless. Don't look for something the way that you look for something when you can't find it and it's right in front of you. Instead, look carefully. What are we looking carefully about? What, are we, what is this concerning? It says, look carefully how you walk. On vacation this last week, there were times when we had to look carefully when we were walking. There may have been a cliff or a drop-off that we had to be careful not to fall off of. There may have been broken glass or something sharp in the creek that we needed to avoid because we were wearing sandals and didn't want to cut our feet. In Kentucky, you've got to be careful for snakes when you're walking. Dangerous snakes down. 
And about a hundred times, I yelled, watch out for poison ivy, or something similar. Most of us still ended up with some poison ivy. Paul isn't talking about walking along a trail or sidewalk. He's talking about how you live your life. Your walk is your life. How are you personally walking through life? Are you being careful? Are you being careless? Are you paying attention so that you don't endanger yourself? Are you kind of stumbling through life, not knowing where you're going, not aware of the dangers that threaten you? Paul tells us, be alert, pay attention, look carefully how you live. Then he contrasts a negative and a positive. He says, we're not to walk in an unwise manner, but to be wise. Are you wise? I don't mean, do you know a lot of stuff? I don't mean, are you really smart, clever? Can you figure things out fast? Those are not wisdom. I'm going to give you a definition for wisdom. I'm going to put it on the screen. It says this, wisdom is knowing the difference between right and wrong and choosing to walk in the right. Now, there are two distinct things there. Right? Sometimes it's really hard to know the difference between right and wrong. We live in a very fuzzy, mixed up, muddled society. Sometimes right and wrong don't appear to be particularly clear to us. It takes wisdom to know the difference between right and wrong. But just knowing the difference is not wisdom. Wisdom is also acting on that, choosing the right. If you know the difference between right and wrong and choose the wrong, you are not wise. God wants you to be wise. He actually commands it multiple times in the Bible to get wisdom, to become wise. Now, how would you do that? More schooling isn't necessarily going to make you wise. Spending more time on social media sure isn't going to make you wise. So how would you grow in wisdom? Proverbs 9.10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. I think this is interesting. Where does wisdom start? It starts with God, specifically with the fear of God. Now, don't, don't try to soften this language and say, well, this is just about respect. It is about respecting God, but the word here is fear. If, if you have a healthy, reverent fear of God, like we see the saints in the Bible, then you will be able to live in a, a correct and appropriate relationship with him that you could not do if you didn't fear him. Because he is worthy not only of respect and awe of reverence, but also of fear. If you don't fear him, if you think highly of yourself, your hot stuff and God's not so great after all, that you don't fear him, you will not be in right relationship with him. You will not be wise. Because wisdom, according to the Bible, starts with, begins at, the fear of the Lord. Fear leads to wisdom. And no matter how smart you are, if you do not fear the Lord, you will not have the kind of wisdom that God wants you to have. Pride makes you a fool. Self-reliance makes you 
Now, much of our culture has embraced a worldview that I would label with four words, secular, humanism, atheistic, materialism. What is all that? Okay, so secular is easy. The idea of non-religious or rejecting the spiritual or rejecting God or rejecting a religious worldview or authority. Humanism is the idea that humans are the top dog on this planet, that we have evolved better than everything else, farther than everything else, and that that we are the highest authority in this world, and that the really important things in this world happen because of us. We are the hope of the world in a humanistic worldview. The fate of the world rests on us. We see this really clearly in the climate alarmism that has been going on for decades in the world. In the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s, in the 2010s, and the 2020s, this group of alarmists have said each decade, there's only a few years left for humans to change and save the world. It's going in the wrong direction. It's going to be destroyed. It's just a matter of of years, and it's been false each decade. It continues to be false this decade. But if you're coming from a humanistic worldview, you can convince yourself that we are the saviors of our certainly doomed world unless we step in. Atheistic means the rejection of God, or specifically choosing to believe that there is no God. There's no divine being that created and rules over the universe. And so there's nobody greater than humans and nobody to answer to or be accountable to. Finally, materialism is the idea that only matter, material, exists. There's no spiritual. There's no God. There's no spirit. There's no soul. We are simply matter. We're a collection of molecules. Now we're an amazing collection of molecules. We can laugh and talk and build things and even send people to the moon, but we're still just matter. Some of the most brilliant minds in modern science believe all four of those things. They are secular, humanist, atheistic, materialists. I think of Stephen Hawking. First picture here. He's a very handicapped individual, but a brilliant mind. He's a a brilliant theoretical physicist. And way back in the ancient 1980s, he published a book that was very popular. It's called A Brief History of Time. In it, he tried to explain to the rest of us common folks how the universe started with a big explosion and has been evolving and spreading out for billions of years since then. Perhaps the most important idea that he has contributed to modern scientific uh, understanding is the idea of a self-creating universe. This is how he gets around his God problem. He refuses to believe that there's a God who created and certainly rules over the universe. But he can't dismiss the fact that stuff exists somehow. And so he postulates this idea of a self-creating universe, that there was nothing, and then that nothing did some stuff and created some stuff. He kind of backs himself into a corner there. Because if you don't believe there's a creator, 
that exists for all eternity, past and present, and can create things just by speaking them into existence like the Bible tells us in Genesis. If you don't believe in such a being, how do you explain the fact that there is anything? Where did it come from? Well, how much do you have to hate the idea of a creator God to say, I firmly believe that there was nothing and that nothing did stuff and made stuff? brilliant scientist and yet a fool. Richard Dawkins is another famous guy. He wrote the book The God Delusion and his main idea is that anybody who believes in God is delusional, meaning they're detached from reality. They don't see things clearly. They completely believe what they see. They are entirely sucked in. They can't see the outside which is actually reality. They are duped. He believes that only things that you can see, touch, measure, observe are real. That humans are just matter. We don't have a spirit or soul. And when we die, we simply decompose. There is nothing beyond what is observable by the scientific method. Now, these two men are far smarter than anybody in this room and anybody that, that we have ever met in our lives. They're off the charts brilliant in so many ways, and yet the Bible would call them fools. Psalm 14.1 says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now that doesn't explain all kinds of foolishness, but that does give us a basis for a lot of foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Maybe that is you today. Going through the motions, you're here worshiping, but you think, I don't really believe there's a God. The Bible would say, out of love, you are a fool. But you don't need to continue as a fool. According to this biblical worldview, the fool doesn't believe that there is a God. He is a fool because he doesn't believe there is a God. Now, this makes sense if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, because if you don't believe that God exists at all, you don't fear him, therefore you don't have the beginning of wisdom, therefore you are a fool. It does make sense. We better get on to the next verse, though, or we're never going to get done with this. So we're to be walking carefully, not as unwise, but as wise. And then verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. You and I are given a certain number of years and days. God knows exactly how long you're going to live. We're admonished in the Bible to ask God to teach us to number or to count our days. That is to to recognize that they are limited and to do what we can with the days that we have. We are called to be stewards of the short time that we're given here on earth. Now, many of us are good at wasting time, myself included. And over the last couple of years, since the changes in society due to the COVID stuff, most of America, I think, has gotten better at wasting time. There are actually there are employees all over the country the last few months that have been throwing fits because their employers are saying, you have to come back to work and you have to actually accomplish 
things. You have to get things done. And like, I haven't really done anything for the last couple years, and I kind of like that. I kind of like wasting time and not doing what I need to do. Christians, though, should be known for hard, diligent work. We serve a God who is at work, who has accomplished great works, who will do great works in the future, and is right now at work in every area of the universe. And we are created in his image. We are also to be working, doing, accomplishing, diligently doing the things that he would have us do. But it's easy to be distracted. It's easy to waste time. It's easy to waste our lives. Younger folks in the room, I want you to hear me. You are living right now with what might be your peak strength, creativity, ability to do great work. Don't waste that. The world wants you distracted. The world wants you to waste your life. I have three copies of a book here. I'm going to give them away. This is John Piper, a pastor I really respect. It's a book called Don't Waste Your Life. It goes along with this idea that I'm just talking about right now. I'm going to put these three copies up here, and anybody who wants them can come get them. If they're all gone and you really want a copy, I've got another copy in my office that I can give you. But John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, read it yourself. Even if you pick it up because you want to give it to somebody else, read it yourself first. That'll be good. All right. Why does it matter if we make our best use of our time? If we use our time wisely, if we are diligent, if we're not wasting our time, if we're not distraction, why does that matter? It's because, according to this verse, the days are evil. Now, if you think that the days we live in are really pretty good, you believe this, this idea of a progressive worldview where science, education, education, the government, they're all helping us to get better and better and better, and it's always going to get better, if you believe that, then this doesn't make much sense. Because this was you know, written 2,000 years ago. The days are evil. and Maybe they're not so evil now. But if you could peel back the wrapping of our time, and you could see the heart of what's going on, you would recognize that we, like Paul, live in evil days. They will not always be evil. Jesus promises he will return. And he will someday set everything right. There will be an end to the evil days and a beginning of a new time period where there is no evil at all. But for right now, we are soldiers living behind enemy lines. We are fighting for a king and a kingdom. Verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. These verses contrast another negative and a positive. Foolishness is contrasted with understanding. We've already dealt with the idea of foolishness some, but let's make sure that we know what a fool is. We defined what wisdom is. Let's define what a fool is. We'll put this up on the screen too. A fool is someone who doesn't understand the difference between right and wrong, is not wise enough to know what the right thing to do is, or may even know the right, but doesn't care and chooses the wrong. I know that's a rambling, convoluted definition, but I needed to get through to you guys the idea that a fool either doesn't know or doesn't care what right and wrong are. Our world is full of 
fools. Our culture is custom designed to create fools. We might say we live in a fool factory. And unless you fight against it, unless you work against it, unless you try according to how God has laid out in the Bible, unless you try to become wise, you will simply by default become a fool. Unless you work contraculturally to raise your children to be wise according to the Bible, they will by default become fools because we live in a fool factory. Foolishness is contrasted here with understanding. Not just, not just general understanding, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Do you know what God wants from people in general? What's, what's God's will for the human race? Do you know what God's will is for your life? How does he want you to live? What is the will of the Lord for you personally, for your marriage, for your family, for your kids, for your work? Do you know his will for your occupation, your career, who you work for, who you marry, how you spend your time? Every area of your life, God has a will for it. Do you want to discover what that is and walk with him in his will? How would you gain such understanding? Well, the obvious answer is is the Bible. God has given us a book full of wisdom and instructions so that we can live according to his will. And if you are saturated with the Bible, not just Sunday mornings, listen to me, but saturated with the Bible, you will be wise. You will have understanding of what the will of the Lord is. God also invites us to ask for wisdom. In James, he clearly says, if you lack wisdom, ask. God gives generously. God delights to give wisdom to his children when they say, Lord, I need wisdom. I don't know what to do. Please grant wisdom. A few times in the last couple of months, I've asked you guys to pray for us that we would have wisdom to know what to do because we need wisdom. I want to thank you if you've been praying for us for that. Do you want to be wise or do you want to be a fool? Do you want to be able to understand the will of the Lord? Do you want to be able to walk through life in step with God or do you want to stumble through, God, through life at odds with God? If you submit yourself and saturate yourself with the Word of God, it will make you wise. Verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So we have another pair to contrast here. The negative is drunkenness. Now don't just limit this, as the verse would suggest here, to drinking wine. All right, so any kind of alcohol... Don't even limit to that, right? Drugs or other substances in that category. If, if it's something that you can eat or drink or snort or smoke or inject and it alters your perception of reality, if you're getting drunk in some way or getting high or getting a low or getting a buzz or whatever it is, that falls into this category. The choices available to us today would blow Paul's mind as he and his buddies are mostly just dealing with wine, simple alcoholic beverages. Don't let anything impair you. 
Are you consuming alcohol or drugs that impair you? Are you getting drunk or high? Then you are not living wisely. You're not walking in obedience and submission to God. You are, in fact, being foolish. Paul says drunkenness is or leads to debauchery, which is a word that we may not use very much today. So what is it? It's not quite the same as drunkenness. It's more of the, the effect from the cause of drunkenness. It's a, it's a lifestyle of foolish, reckless, improper, unrestrained, sinful living. We might think of the stereotypical college party scene or a hookup culture. The alcohol and the drug use are not the end. They lead to sexual immorality, unrestrained sin, and reckless foolishness. That's the debauchery part of it. You can live a debauched life without alcohol or drug use. In many cases, though, it's alcohol and drug use that leads to or facilitates a life of debauchery. So much of our culture is characterized this because, by this because we don't want to be restrained. We don't want to control ourselves. We certainly don't want God to have control over us and dictate how we are to limit ourselves. And so we use substances that alter our minds and that help us to engage in all kinds of foolishness. And this is not the way of the people of God. The Bible contrasts drunkenness that leads to debauchery with the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is really the, the focal point of, this, of the passage today. This is the main idea. Stuff before it leads up to it, stuff after it points back to it. Filled with the Holy Spirit is the main part. Have you ever wondered why alcohol is referred to as spirits? Kind of a weird thing, isn't it? It's because there's a cheap knockoff of what we are supposed to be filled with. Don't surrender yourself to the control of alcohol or some other substance. Give yourself to the control of the Holy Spirit. Are you under the influence of alcohol or are you under the influence of the Spirit? Under the influence of spirits or the influence of the Spirit? Each Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling in them from the point of conversion, but we can experience different levels of being filled with the Spirit. That's why it tells us to be filled with the Spirit. If, when you became a Christian, you were filled up with the Spirit and you remained full of the Spirit no matter what, then this verse would not be necessary. But we leak. We tend to spill. We pour out and ignore and let the Spirit dry up. And so we are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can live a life controlled by the Spirit of God, filled with, overflowing with the Spirit of God. And you think, well, look, I've been living my life for how many years? And I've never really been filled with the Spirit of God. Like I've, I've had a little bit of experience, I've dabbled with God. There have been times where I thought, wow, I'm really close to God, but this idea of being filled with the God, I can't, I can't imagine what that would be like. And yet that's what we're called to right here. It's a different kind of life. We can be filled with the Spirit, full of power, full of wisdom, living under His control, 
for his purposes and for his glory. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. Don't you want to be full? Don't you want to not have an empty, worthless, meaningless life, but a full life directed by the Spirit of God for the glory of God? You can have that kind of life. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is inviting and commanding us into that kind of life right now. How would we do that? What would that look like? The answer is a little surprising. There's a bunch of ways we could talk about how you might be filled with the Spirit of God, but Paul's going to focus in on a particular thing that I just wouldn't have thought about. Verse 19. So we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Singing? That's the answer that Paul gives us here? Yeah. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? Singing. It occurred to me this morning that there's an interesting historical side note for that. We don't sing a lot of old hymns in this church, but there are some really great old hymns. And some, some of the best hymns were written even multiple hundred years ago. Like There's a, a song by Martin Luther called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Right? Really good song. It's a strong, belted out kind of song. A mighty fortress is our God. So he wrote the words to that, but the legend, maybe, is that the tune is just a bar tune from Germany 500 years ago. You can kind of see it. You got your Stein and your almighty fort, you know, pounding it on it. He's like, I, I got a tune. It fits. The people already know it. I'm going to put new words to it. Folks are singing the same tune, controlled by alcohol, or they're singing the tune, controlled by the Spirit, singing spiritual things. There's something about music that crosses divides. We sing in church. Sing in the car, alone. I don't know if there's much singing at bars today, but there certainly was many years ago. What is it about singing that somehow connects with our spirit? You and I are designed to sing. You think, you've never heard me singing, right? I know. Some people can't carry a tune in a bucket. I understand that. That is okay. Psalm 101 says, make a joyful noise before the Lord. I am thankful that the Holy Spirit, speaking through, I think, David at the time, doesn't say, sing with perfect pitch and excellence before the Lord, right? He gives everyone the invitation, even if all you can muster is a joyful noise. Your heavenly Father delights in in the singing of his children. Maybe you remember your children being young and singing, they're they're not really getting it, and the tune isn't going great, and the words are all mixed up, and yet it is delightful to you because you love them. That is the same way I believe that our Heavenly Father delights even in our joyful noise. 
This week I participated in a Facebook conversation with some local Western Ohio pastors. One pastor was really discouraged because he's been at his church now for two years and almost the entire congregation refuses to sing at all. They changed the music, they changed, they got new songs, they got new musicians, but the people just sit or stand with their mouths shut tight and their hearts shut even tighter. This is breaking this young pastor's heart because he knows that his people were created to worship God, and part of that is worshiping through song. He wants them to worship through song, but they just refuse, and he doesn't know what to do. If he could force them to sing, he would. You ever try to force somebody to sing? It doesn't work. Notice, Paul tells us about two dimensions of the singing. First, he describes singing to each other for the benefit of each other. So we come together as a church on Sunday mornings, or when our youth come together on Wednesday nights, or if our outpost is meeting at our house, we sing. Why? Part of the answer is because it's good for us. It helps us. It encourages us. We need to hear again the gospel message. We need to be reminded of the truths of Scripture, and song has a unique ability to get those truths into us. Because we forget things. We get discouraged. We get beat down. And God gives us the gift of song as a way of fighting the battle that rages in this world. Song is, in one sense, a weapon that we wield. You and I need each other's voices singing the truths of God to each other. We need that. Even if you're not so good at singing, you can encourage your brother or sister in Christ by making that joyful noise. Now the other aspect comes in the second half of the verse. So we are to sing and make melody to the Lord with our hearts. That's the first half of the verses horizontal, encouraging each other with our songs. Second half is vertical, singing to God. God wants you to sing to Him. He delights in you singing songs of worship to Him. Even if you're off key, if you're out of tempo, or you forget the lyrics. I'm really bad with lyrics. Your Heavenly Father delights in the voices of His children as they sing to Him. It brings Him glory and honor and pleasure when we sing to him. I have a soundtrack going in my mind all the time. If I'm working on a sermon, writing things, if I'm walking through the woods, if I'm driving in the car, if I'm fixing the car, whatever it is, there's always music going on in the back of my head and often being played out loud. I have filled my head and my heart with godly, God-honoring music. And so the soundtrack that's always going in my mind is always building me up, encouraging me, helping me walk in obedience to Christ. The music you listen to shapes your theology, shapes your outlook on life. Russell touched on that last week. He didn't know I was going to talk about it this week. Last week... Just two days ago, Friday, we drove around southern Kentucky for four hours exploring some places. And then we drove for four hours home. 
And that whole time, there's music playing in the van, good, God-honoring music. And that whole time, Allie is singing along to all of those songs. She knows every song, every lyric, and she just keeps singing. She basically sang for eight hours on Friday. It's pretty amazing. She sings quietly, though, so she can make it for eight hours. It's beautiful. I love it. I know that my kids have the truth of God hidden deep inside them because the music that they hear all the time. Music is the language of the human heart. Music is sneaky. It sneaks in under the door of our hearts. Gets truths or falsehoods in there. Music shapes us. All right, so what else does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a radical idea. Russell talked about this last week in his sermon too. He talked about how he and Josie are intentionally building thanksgiving into their personal and family prayer times. They're teaching their kids to start their prayers by thanking God for things. They're disciplining themselves to be thankful. Thanksgiving is an act of worship. Think about the word thanksgiving. It's the giving of thanks. It's an act of worship, of bringing an offering of thanks to God. That's where we get our word thanksgiving from. This verse tells us we give thanks always and for everything Always and for everything. Like, not just once a year right before you're going to eat turkey, but always. And not just for the good things, but even for the hard things, the bad things. When was the last time that you thanked God for hard stuff? Lord, I thank you for the physical disability and the pain that keeps me from doing what I want to do. Lord, I I thank you for that friend who betrayed me and hurt me so badly. I thank you for the cancer that is trying to kill me. I thank you for the job loss. I thank you for the budget that just won't balance or the spouse who refuses to meet my needs or the kids that drive me crazy. Thank you for the disappointments in my life. Thank you for the heartache. Thank you for the heartbreak. We don't often pray like that. Paul, through the Spirit, says, giving thanks always for everything. He would also write to the church in Colossae, where he'd say basically the same thing. This is Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts, to God. Same stuff, said a little more concisely. This is on purpose because God wants us to sing on purpose. Notice the presence of the Trinity both in the Colossians passage and in the Ephesians passage. In Colossians, we get two aspects we've got the Word of Christ dwelling in us, and we've got hearts that are thankful to God the Father. In the Ephesians passage, if we go ahead to that, Calum, we'll see highlighted here. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
third member of the Trinity, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord, referring to Jesus with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be filled, as Paul said a few verses earlier, with the fullness of God. Your life can overflow with a stream of God. Let me wrap this up with one more small thing from vacation. On Thursday, we visited the Blue Heron Mining Community in southern Kentucky. So this is the the tipple for the coal mine to load the different kinds of coal into the train cars and send them off. It's the only part of the mining community that still exists as the original structure, though it's been spruced up a bit. Instead, as the next picture shows, the National Park Service has constructed a bunch of shells of buildings of the size and location of the buildings that used to be there. And there are displays in there, and it's a pretty neat thing. They've recorded the audio of people who used to live there, and you can go press a button, you can listen to them talk about what it was like growing up in this little mining community in the middle of nowhere. And this particular building that you're looking at here is a community church building, and in that, hanging on the wall, is the church covenant for that congregation. How did they unite themselves together in membership. Now, I know you can't read that. I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to break it into chunks. And I want you to see some interesting parallels between how they view church membership and this passage that we just read. So here's what it says. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God and and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. That word solemnly there, we could put soberly, we could put seriously, and notice, serious and joyful are not at odds with each other. You can be serious and joyful at the same time. You can be sober and joyful. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship ordinances, meaning baptism and the Lord's Supper, discipline and doctrines, the teachings, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all the nations." We also engage to maintain family and secret devotions, means worship together as a family and then individual time alone with God and His Word and prayer, to religiously educate our children. They're taking responsibility for the upbringing of their children, not farming it off to somebody else to get their God info, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, and to walk circumspectly. That's the idea of walking carefully, looking carefully, in the world, because I would say because the world is evil, just like Paul said in our passage, walk circumspectfully in the world to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all tattling. <laughs> I assume he means gossip. It's just we use the word differently today. Backbiting, excessive anger, to abstain from the sale of and the use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage, 
to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We're going to be sober-minded. We're going to keep our minds clear. We're going to advance the kingdom because we are subjects of a king. We are serving his kingdom. We're in enemy territory. We are on a mission. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and Christian courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation. Our whole theme for Ephesians is the idea of reconciliation. They're saying we're going to be quick, eager to be reconciled to each other. We don't want to be divided. And mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principle of God's word. He's 100 years old. I love that. Some good stuff in there. These people took their church membership very seriously. They covenanted together and they lived according to this covenant This little community, which at most had 200 people living there at any particular time, had produced a whole bunch of pastors and missionaries, far more than a proportion would suggest. And I have to believe that this is in part due to the somber and joyful choice to live in covenant with each other according to God's Word. Now there's another display there in that church shell. It gives a different glimpse into the values of this worshiping community. They had Sunday school and worship on Sunday mornings. They had Sunday evening worship. They had Wednesday evening worship. A lot of meetings going on. And they also had what they called singing school. So this is a photo of the particular paragraph. It says, Most people who were young at Blue Heron remember being taught to carry a tune and harmonize at singing school, later making them better congregational and choir singers. So, look at this next picture. Look at these folks. Okay, on the next picture. Do they look like singers to you? Do they look like people who, like, they're just going to burst into song at any moment? If I see a picture like this hanging on a museum wall, I don't immediately think, I wonder how they sing. And yet these people living you know, in this isolated community, most of them never making it past eighth grade in education, never like, escaping into a great career. They're, they're just here in the mining community. They decide that their priority is going to be singing. We're going to actually have a school. We're going to teach our kids and our adults how to sing better. Why? So that we can sing better as a congregation. So that we can better worship God through song. Were they hoping that they would get on American Idol or American Scott? got talent and and make it out. No, they were focused on singing better for Jesus. So they disciplined and they prioritized for singing. God delights in the singing of his children. So they disciplined themselves to get better at it. It was all about being able to worship God. I find this amazing and inspiring. So what's our takeaway for today? 
Quite simply, we are to refuse to live our lives like the world. We are to refuse to be foolish, drunken, lazy, and careless. Instead, we are to be wise, sober, hardworking, and careful. We are to avoid the influence of intoxicating substances, and instead, we are to live under the influence of and filled with the Holy Spirit. And part of the way that we do that, the way that we grow in our holiness and live full of the Holy Spirit, according to Paul in Ephesians 5, is we sing. So, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. I pray that you sing with gusto to encourage each other and to bring glory to God. Father, Thank you that in your perfect plan, you created humans with the capacity and even the calling to sing. Some of us are better singers than others. Some of us enjoy singing. Some of us just avoid singing at all costs. But we know from your word that you've given us song as a gift for our growth and for your glory. So, we come now, we humbly express our belief that you are God and that we are not, that you are the ruler of the universe and we are your subjects, that you are our king and we are your servants. We offer ourselves back to you, we ask that you fill us with wisdom, fill us with your Holy Spirit, make us more like your Son, and do that even now as we sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.